of the time when people think about the book of Revelation, they think of the end times events, and those are coming up. That takes center stage here in chapter 4 and really gets going in chapter 6. But you have to remember the name for the book of Revelation is Revelation. It's a Greek word that we get where it means apocalypse. It means unveiling. It's the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. So as you go through this book, you're seeing who Jesus really is. And that's the real focus of what this book is. So often we want to focus on the end times part of it. And that is very important. It's important to not be ignorant of those things. But the first few chapters are really laying the groundwork of who Jesus Christ himself is. Now in chapters 2 and 3... We have these seven letters to the seven churches, and you should see that on the sheet, I hope that you have. Each of these churches was a real church, a local church, and what Jesus does is he's writing to them. He talks about the good, the bad, and the ugly that they're going through. There's also prophetic. It's a glimpse of church history as we go through this. I also believe these churches are applicable to all churches. Whatever church you attend, you're going to see aspects in these churches and say, yeah, that's us. What can we learn from this? How is Jesus telling to correct us? This is also personal to us. Each of these letters ends with this idea of to him who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The Lord is saying, I also want to talk to you. So as you go through this, look at it as an individual as well, saying, what things do I need to learn from? So it's a local church. It's prophetic. It's applicable to church issues, and it's also personal to us as we go through this. So we did last week the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna, and tonight we're going to do the church at Pergamos, we're going to do the church at Thyatira. So we're going to pick it up here in Revelation 2, verse 12, and let's jump right into this. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even the days when Antipas, my faithful martyr, he was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual morality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden man to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. A couple little quick reminders from last week, where it says to the angel of the church in Pergamos, verse 12, that word angel literally means messenger. It could be referring to angelic beings. I don't want to take away that interpretation of it. It also could be referring to the messenger there, the pastor, the leader of that church that is receiving this letter as well. So this church in Pergamos now receives this letter. Pergamos. Pergamos. They had an altar there dedicated to Zeus, who was supposed to be the god of the gods. They also had temples there dedicated to the worship of Roman emperors. See, at time, the Roman emperors, you would have to go and pay homage to them on a yearly basis. And so Pergamos was the center of this. So this is where you start to see him talk a little bit. So let's get to that. First thing you see in verse 12, he has the sharp two-edged sword. Please remember that's a reference to God's word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. God's word is powerful. Please remember the power of God's word. Book of Isaiah says it will not return void. Jesus said his word is truth. His word cuts. When you start talking to people, if you're counseling people and encouraging people, give them God's word. Don't take this the wrong way. No one needs your opinion. No one needs my opinion. They need the word of God. The word of God is truth. The word of God cuts. And the word of God doesn't return void. It doesn't return void. So often people forget us. 
people to never forget God's word. I was just talking to one of my boys recently, and they go home and they like to listen to the podcasts of the messages here uh, when they go to bed at night. Now, I like to think that they want to learn about God's word. Sometimes I think they're just listening to see if their names are mentioned. I don't know. But they listen to them on a regular basis, which is very surreal as you walk through the house that you hear your own voice teaching. It's not something I normally enjoy. But one of my boys came up to me and said, Dad, do you know what book you should go through next? I said, what book do you think I should go through? He goes, I think you should go through the book of Revelation. I said, I'm in the book of Revelation right now, buddy. He goes, oh, I didn't know that. So have you been listening to the podcast from Wednesday night? He goes, yeah, I listen to them every Wednesday night. I said, you didn't even know what book I was in? He goes, no, I don't really listen or pay attention. I just like it in the background. So my point is, I know my words return void. I get that. My own kids don't have a problem telling me that. But God's word doesn't return void. It's truth and it cuts. Please remember that as you see sharper than any double-edged swords. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne, as I mentioned earlier, they had this huge altar set up to Zeus himself. Satan's throne right there. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith. Let me ask you this. Do you guys work where Satan's throne's at? Some of you come in and you tell me stories from where you work and it sounds like you work where Satan's throne's at. Some of you go to school where Satan's throne is at, and some of you live in a house, it seems to be, where Satan's throne is at. What are you supposed to do with that? So often, we complain about it. To be honest, we whine about it. And really, what are we supposed to do? Verse 13, hold fast to the name of Jesus and don't deny your faith. So often, people come up to me and say, you know what, I am so frustrated with my job. I'm the only Christian in my department. I'm the only Christian on my line. I'm looking and praying for something different. They usually don't like my response. My response is, amen. You're a Christian right there on that line in that department. Now, listen, I get that it's draining and it's difficult. And there's a reason why Jesus sent the disciples out in groups of two. You want one other believer. Some of you may be living and working, going to school in Satan's throne. But please do not deny the name. And please do not deny the faith and hold fast. You will be blessed. You will definitely be blessed. Look at the church here at Pergamos. They were praised for being faithful in times of spiritual attacks. They were attacked to the point of even martyrdom. Antipas was killed. Church history tells us that Antipas was uh, burned alive. Burned alive for this. And so Jesus says, I know this, I see this, and he's even killed among you where Satan dwells. So they they were praised for that. But there's two things they did wrong. Verse 14, the doctrine of Balaam. In verse 15, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've talked about the Nicolaitans before. Nicolaitan, that name literally means power over the people. What most commentators believe is what was happening in church history is that they started having this hierarchy of power. And if you go through different church histories, what you start to see right now in the church of Pergamos, this would be the historical time where Christianity starts to become accepted. If you've ever studied out church history, you know Constantine, quote-unquote, became saved. You know, we can debate whether he was truly saved or not. And what happens is the persecution started to drop off a little bit. They became more accepted. And so now that Christianity is more accepted, you see this hierarchy coming. And I'm telling you right now, as a pastor, the last thing you want to see in a church is hierarchy. We're all supposed to be brothers and sisters in the Lord, serving the Lord together, washing feet, and proclaiming the gospel. As soon as you start worrying about your little territory and area, you're no longer focusing on the gospel. You're focusing on yourself and your flesh. I refer it as this. I, I, I hate it when I see pastors. I say this. They act like tomcats marking their territory. I don't get that. 
If we're all supposed to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then let's all proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not promote ourselves. Let's not promote a church. Let's not promote a ministry. Let's promote Jesus. And so what you see here is that power over the people, that hierarchy of the Nicolaitans. No. Jesus says that is not what we want to do. And it says that you have those things which I hate. Please note, if you've ever seen the Bible where God says he hates something, you should probably really pay attention to that. For where God himself says, I hate this. Okay, Lord, if you hate it, then I need to really look into that because I don't want to have anything to be a part of that. But he also talks about the other doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam. Oh, Balaam is a fascinating character in the Bible, and we're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about Balaam, if you will. But before we get into Balaam, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about anything that we've covered thus far here about the Church of Pergamos before we get into Balaam? Somebody's got their hand up. Is that Megan? Hey, Megan. Persecute somebody else, get at me like a loved one of yours? Okay. First off, let's talk about the word martyr actually means. So often when we see the word martyr, we believe it means dying for the faith. That is what the common term that we use for martyr is. If you really look at the word martyr in the Greek, it literally means witness. And so when you see all those times in the Bible where God is asking you to be a witness, he's asking you to be a martyr. What he's really trying to say is, will you please give your life up so much right now? It's like you don't even live anymore. Remember when we went through the book of Galatians, we said that God wants us to die, deny, and disappear. Die to who we are, deny ourselves, and disappear and make it all about Jesus. So therefore, you can, from a biblical perspective, be a living martyr. You have so given up your life that you just don't even exist anymore, and you're so living for Jesus Christ, it's like you died. And that's what it means to be a witness. That's the word martyr means. Now, in this context right here, the martyr actually went to the point of death. So what Megan is saying, could somebody could uh, somebody you love be attacked to get to you, correct? Is that what you're saying? I mean, that's always possible that that type of event could happen. But, you know, we'd have to be very careful about something like that. Um, I think when you get to that route, your mind can start to wander a little bit and start to say, okay, my kid's really sick. You know, somebody is the God trying to get my attention or is the enemy trying to attack me or something like that? I think really what it comes down to is you've got to remember, when we take a stand for the faith, we're going to be persecuted for that. That's what Jesus made very clear. I'm not saying that those other attacks can't happen, but ultimately it's very personal when we take the stand for Jesus Christ. So I'm not trying to dodge your question here, but as I'm talking to you, Megan, I'm kind of going through my biblical encyclopedia in my head and trying to think of an example in the Bible where somebody was attacked because of somebody else. There is the example of David's son, If you remember correctly, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and his uh, one-year-old child did die. But I would not use that term as a persecution. That was more of a judgment upon David's relationship that he had with Bathsheba. I can't think of an example right now of actual persecution, because if you look in Matthew chapter 5, when we're persecuted, we're blessed. That's what the Bible says. So I think that would be a little bit more of a personal thing towards us when we're persecuted, not necessarily a loved one around us. Anybody else got anything? Corbin. See, but that, that's a tough one. I was thinking about Job too. Yeah, I don't know. When I think of the term persecution, this is what I like about Wednesday nights. Let's go to Matthew 5. Let's talk about, see, when I think of persecution, 
This is what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of this passage here in Matthew chapter 5. When I think of Job, Job was used more as this example. Job was used more in this, in this thing with the Lord. Look at my servant Job. When I think of persecution, I think of Matthew 5. Uh, let's start in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. See, that's what I was trying to say. It's more towards us for our stand in the Lord. And say all kinds of falsely evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who are before you. That's a much more personal thing with us. These other examples we're talking about, David and Bathsheba and their son, was a judgment on their relationship there. Uh, What you see with Job was a much deeper issue that goes on for 40 chapters there in the book of Job. And that Corbin was saying, is that even really persecution? I think I would lean more towards not persecution necessarily per se, but something deeper that was going on. John. Yeah, man is attacking man for our stand in the Lord. Yeah. A whole other realm. Yeah. John 10, 10, yeah. Thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. All right. Anybody else got any other questions, comments here? All right, let's talk about Balaam. I love talking about Balaam. Balaam is mentioned so many times in the Bible. Balaam is actually mentioned three times in the New Testament. Now think about that for a second. Balaam is an Old Testament character from the book of Numbers. Most of the time we don't get into the book of Numbers. But Balaam, and what we know about Balaam comes from our Sunday school lesson of Balaam's donkey talking to him. That's about all we know about Balaam. And if you'd go up to somebody and say, what do you know about Balaam? Well, I know his donkey talked to him. Okay, well, what happened before that? I don't know. What happened after that? I don't know. I just know they had a pet talking donkey. You know, that's all I know. There's a lot going on here, and I'm just going to give you a quick rundown because I don't want to lose too much time here as much as possible. It's in Numbers 22 through 24. Numbers 22 through 24. What happened is this. There's this nation by the nation of Moab with a king by the name of Balak that didn't like Israel. Israel had too many people. Israel was too powerful. So they knew Balaam was a prophet. So Balak, the king of Moab, comes and hires Balaam and says, I want to hire you to curse Israel. Will you do this for me? Well, the problem is, Balaam says, I I really can't do that. I'm a prophet of God. So I can't really go curse Israel. So they kind of keep coming to Balaam. They keep offering more and more stuff. And Balaam kind of keeps flirting with this and says, well, why don't you guys stay overnight and we'll talk about it a little bit more. So then God says to him that night, Balaam, go with them. So Balaam goes with them. Now, as Balaam get ready to go to follow them, God says, I'm so angry at you going that I've sent the angel of the Lord there, an angel, I should say, of the Lord, not angel, the Lord, to kill you. And that's when the donkey won't go. And so therefore, Balaam starts getting upset at the donkey and then the donkey talks back. Which is really weird. I don't know what's weirder, that the donkey talks to Balaam or Balaam actually has a conversation with the donkey. Think about that for a second. Why? Because the donkey saw the angel and said, I don't want to go any further. And the angel's there to kill Balaam. And then now all of a sudden, like, God, you told me to go. And now you want to kill me for going. This doesn't make any sense. Because God basically says this, Balaam, you know I didn't want you to go. But I let you go. I let you go because that's what you wanted. And I'm trying to teach you a lesson. See, the Lord does this. Think back to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you're going to die. God, and Hezekiah says, oh, Lord, please don't kill me. God says, okay, fine, I'll give you 15 more years. And Hezekiah did a lot of dumb stuff in his extra 15 years. We use the other example a lot of Israel. Israel's whining and complaining about food. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough food. God says, fine, you want food? I'll give you a quail. That's what you asked for. And Israel literally ate themselves to death. 
Parents, you do the same thing. Your child wants to do something. They beg, they plead, they whine, they whatever. And you finally say, fine, go do it. The only way I can teach you this lesson is allow you to go through it. Now, you would never let them do something to harm themselves. But you would stop and say, fine, you want to learn it? Go ahead and learn it. Balaam was set to go do this because Balaam wanted the gold, the treasure. He wanted everything of it. So to fast forward here a little bit, Balaam does his first prophecy, ends up blessing Israel. So they come back and rehire him again with more money. Balaam does it again and then blesses Israel again. It goes on four times. Four times. And he keeps blessing Israel. Finally, Balaam says this in Numbers 24. He says, I got a deal I want to make with you. Balaam, can you come talk to me privately? Then we find out later on in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 31, that Balaam's idea was this. He says, I can't curse Israel. Every time I open my mouth, I keep blessing them. So this is what I want you to do, Moab. I want you to send your prettiest girls over to Israel. And so let your pretty girls come into Israel. Then the Israeli men are going to say, oh, I like those girls from Moab. And then they're going to intermarry with their girls from Moab. And then you're going to bring your idolatry into Israel. And you're going to defeat Israel from the inside out. And that's exactly what happened. And you can go read about it in Numbers 24 and also in Numbers 31. So what is the doctrine of Balaam? Verse 14. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed by idols, because that's the doctrine that those girls brought in, and to commit sexual morality, because Israel was not supposed to be with women from the other countries there. And that's exactly what they did. So now this is where it gets interesting. Three times in the New Testament, Balaam is mentioned. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. 2 Peter 2.15. 2 Peter 2.15 talks about the way of Balaam. What's the way of Balaam? You know the truth, but you don't follow the truth. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. And you don't care. (laughs) That's the way of Balaam. Balaam knew what was right. He was a prophet of God. But man, they just kept offering more and more and more, which takes us to the next one. And Jude verse 11, Jude verse 11 talks about the error of Balaam. What is the error of Balaam? Greed, money. Balaam said, you know what? You pay the right price. I'll say whatever you want me to say. Sad part is, that's what most people think of Christianity today, is that Christianity only wants your money. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. Lastly, you see in Revelation 2, which we just talked about right here, the doctrine of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? Sexual morality, things sacrificed to idols. So Balaam is one of the worst guys in the Old Testament. We only know him about the talking donkey, but really what it is, this is a man so focused and compromised so much for greed, the error of Balaam, Jude 11. The way of Balaam, 2 Peter 2.15. I know the truth, but I'm not going to follow the truth. And lastly, Revelation 2.14. I just want the sexual morality. That stuff is still around today. Still around today. And so what's happening is, you see it in the church today. You see it in the world today. And this doctrine of Balaam is still there. So what are we supposed to do with this? Verse 16, repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We're supposed to repent. We're supposed to stop and say, okay, what are we supposed to repent of? Ask yourself those three things. Do you know the truth and just not want to follow it? Do we know the truth and just not want to follow it? That's the first one. What about the next one? What about money? Greed. See, the problem with greed is this. Most of the time we think of somebody who's greedier than us, so therefore our greed never looks as bad. But what about Our greed, our personal greed. Listen, I've seen people be greedy over a dollar. It's not the amount, it's what's in the heart. 
And lastly, sexual morality, the doctrine of Balaam. There's so much junk out there, guys. You know that, I know that. So what are we supposed to do? Once again, verse 16, repent. Verse 17, if you hear this, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let this apply to your life. Let this apply to your home. Let this apply to your church. And I want to be the overcomer to him who overcomes. Who's the overcomer? Look at your sheets. Go back to the first church at Ephesus. He is who who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 1 John 5, 5. An overcomer is someone who has accepted Jesus Christ. And look what you get. Here's your reward. Hidden manna and a white stone. Now, I don't know about you. A white stone. My youngest, uh, Tyrus, who is five, finds the most precious stones in the world. And they're always, I mean, like when we leave church, it's just like the most precious stones you've ever seen out there in that parking lot. And when he finds them, he wants to give it to me. And I have a shelf in my kitchen with all the little stones that Tyrus has found over the years. He gave me a piece of corn, not an ear of corn, a little piece of corn last week. And he says, if I have this corn, I could have whatever power I wanted. And I've kept that. So to Tyrus, stones are precious. But if Jesus came up to you and you had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus, and he said, the only thing I want to do is this, I'm going to give you a white stone. And it's going to have your new name written on it. And then he just disappeared. You'd walk away a little disappointed. So let's talk about what this means. First off, hidden manna. Well, we know from John chapter 6 that Jesus is the bread of life. So that's a good thing right there. I want that manna. Jesus comes out in John 6 and says, I'm the manna. I'm the manna that they ate of in the wilderness. It's all about me. And he doesn't mean that in some prideful way, but it's all about God and his glory. And you want to eat of the Lord. You want that. So there, hidden manna makes sense. White stone. White stone means so many different things in in ancient culture. It's difficult to pick a couple. I only picked two. You could have a white stone that showed you were acquitted. I like that. Because I'm really guilty of sin and I deserve hell. But through Jesus Christ, I have a white stone. White represents righteousness. My sins have been forgiven. I have been acquitted. Number two, they would also give a white stone out for victory. How would you like that as your trophy for winning the race? But it showed victory. And what does the Bible say? Victory in Jesus. That's what it comes down to. So this white stone is precious, and it says I get a new name written on it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So therefore, that white stone can show acquittal. My sins have been forgiven. It shows victory. I finished the race. It shows I have a new name. Some commentators even said in the culture that if you had a really close friend thousands of years ago, you'd give them a white stone. It could represent friendship. In some cultures, it represented acceptance to a party. That was your ticket. You had the white stone that you had entrance in. There's so many different meanings to this. So when Jesus says, I want to give you a white stone, it's a good thing. Maybe it means that you're friends. Maybe it means you're invited to the party for eternity. Maybe it means you're the victor. Maybe it means that you've been acquitted of your sins. But I know that you have a new name because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that's what matters more than anything, is that the old is gone, the new has come. That old lifestyle that brought you down, that burdened you, that destroyed you is gone. That sin you used to live in is gone. And now you have a new name in Christ, new life. Amen. That's what it means to be born again. Get to start all over. So that's the church at Pergamos there. Maybe got any quick questions, comments about anything we covered there with Balaam or any of that before we move on? John. What 
What I would say the difference between Balaam and Solomon was this. Balaam, number one, was a prophet. So therefore, if you look at that, carrying weight by speaking forth for God, Solomon was given, he wasn't a prophet, but he was given a position that he just kind of messed up with. Number two, we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which seems to hint that Solomon, towards the end, maybe figured it out a little bit. Whereas with Balaam, our last reference to Balaam is in Numbers 31, where he is killed by the troops of Israel, and it says that he went and did this whole thing with Balak. So there's really nothing at the end there with that. Yeah, he didn't learn. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay, next church, Thyatira, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual morality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And as I also receive from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So now we're on to Thyatira. Thyatira. This is one of those churches that the actual town, the localness of it, um, was not a very powerful or big place in any way whatsoever. It was kind of an off-the-beaten-path type of thing. So really not a lot of attention. But if you look here, it gets like the longest speech of anybody. The Lord has a lot to say to the church of Thyatira. So first off, remember what we're talking about. The historical context of the church, the prophetic part of the church. We're talking about how it's applicable to us and also how it reveals Jesus. From an historical standpoint, if we're continuing past this, if Pergamos in verses 12 through 17 was when the church kind of got accepted a little bit in Constantine, Thyatira is when you're starting getting to the rise of really uh, the power of the Roman Catholic Church. And so we'll get into that here in a little bit as well too. But look at the description of Jesus, verse 18. These, uh, he's the Son of God. Pretty big statement there. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. That should remind you of what we did back in Revelation 1. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. The same description there. Eyes like fire. Eyes are piercing eyes. They see. They know what's going on. They know your works. They know everything that is happening. Nothing can be hidden from him. His eyes can pierce and search. Take a look at verse 23. I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. You can hide it from your spouse. You can hide it from your kids. You can hide it from your co-workers, your pastor, your friends and family. But Christ knows. The next thing you see there is his feet like fine brass. Brass should remind you of the temple in the Old Testament of the bronze laver that was used for washing there near the judgment. So when you see brass there, this is talking about a God that sees and a God that will judge. Because that's the revelation of who Jesus is. Remember, we talked about this way back in the first lesson. Most of the time when we think of Jesus, we think of the nice guy with the nice beard and hair wearing the lamb around his neck. And he's always smiling. That's what we think of Jesus. Or he's always sitting talking to some child. In Revelation, he's the king that's coming back to reclaim the earth. 
In fact, in Revelation 19, when he comes back at the battle of Armageddon, the blood comes up to the horse's bridle. That's Jesus that, that will judge, Jesus that sees. Look at the compliment in verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first, meaning you're growing. The last are more than the first. You're actually doing more. I think this is something really important. Can you go with me to Hebrews real quick, please? Hebrews chapter 5. Be careful of being a Christian that lives in the past. Always be careful about that. The Lord wants us to keep moving forward. It doesn't mean you don't stop and remember what Christ did in the past and to Him be the glory. It doesn't mean you don't give Him the honor for that. But you've got to be careful. I, I know a guy that every time I visit him, every time I visit him, he wants to tell me about how on fire he was back in the 70s. And I'm not making this up. And that was 40 years ago. I'm thankful that the 70s was a very fruitful decade for him. I really do mean that. But what's been happening in the last 40 years? See, take a look here at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. This is some pretty straightforward stuff. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. You've been walking with the Lord long enough. You've been studying the Lord long enough. You should be teaching people. Instead, you're just a baby with a bottle. And you can't handle the meat. And you just want milk. Boy, you know people like that. I do too. They've been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. But where's the depth? Where's the fruit? Where's the ministry? They're just babies. Then you can bottle. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles. Let's get past the basics of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. Let's go on to maturity. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Grow. Grow. See, so often I see people get right with the Lord, they get saved, and then they just flatline. I call it plateau Christianity. They reach a spot in life, but they like it. I mean, it's really a lot better than what it used to be. I mean, you really should have seen how my life was, so this is a whole lot better. You should have seen what my marriage was like, this is a whole lot better. And then we just plateau right there. And it's like, well, you're an adult drinking out of a bottle. I'm okay with it if you're okay with it. As a pastor, I'm not okay with it. But according to Hebrews, I also can't force solid food on you. You have to want it. You have to desire it. And I like what it says here to the church of Thyatira. It says in verse 19, your works, the last are more than the first. You are growing. There's more happening. Amen. There's a praise for the outside appearance of good. They look really, really good on the outside. You know Christians like that. You know churches like that. That they just, I mean, you look at their bulletin. That's a great church. You look at that person, well, they have to be really on fire for the Lord because they keep telling me how on fire they are for the Lord. But take a look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. On the inside, you're rotten. Yeah, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're covered in evil. Sexual morality, idolatry. There's a lot of junk going on on the inside. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 23. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. If you're not going to a funeral and you go to a cemetery, 
you can enjoy the cemetery. Landscaping is usually very pretty. It's usually very well manicured and taken care of. It's very well laid out. Paths that you can walk. And it's all covering death. Same thing here. We look really good on the outside. Just don't, don't look in our closets, okay? Because there's a lot of sexual immorality and idolatry and death in there. Look good on the outside, but covered in evil on the inside. And he uses the example of Jezebel for this. Let's talk about Jezebel. Can you go with me to Second Kings 9? We're running out of time. I can't take you to all the references. Let's just say this. There's a reason why you don't see a lot of ladies named Jezebel, okay? If you've never studied out who Jezebel is, she, you can make a case. I, I think you can make a pretty strong case she's the worst lady in the Old Testament. You may even be able to make a case she's the worst lady in the entire Bible. 2 Kings chapter 9. What's this background a little bit? Jezebel, we know from 1 Kings 18, I'm just going to go through this quickly, personally took care of 450 priests of Baal and 400 priests of Ashereth, which was a Canaanite goddess. So she personally made sure 850 false prophets were taken care of. In 1 Kings chapter 19, she didn't like the fact that Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, so she ordered a personal hit on Elijah. She's the one that ordered it. We know from 1 Kings chapter 21 that her husband Ahab was quite a wimpy little man. Ahab had this vineyard that he really wanted by the guy's name of Naboth, N-A-B-O-T-H. And so he really wanted this vineyard. And he goes to Naboth and he says, Naboth, can I buy your vineyard? Naboth says, I like my vineyard. You can't buy it. Ahab says, I really want to buy it. Naboth says, I'm not selling it. So Ahab goes home and he cries on his bed. And Jezebel comes in and says, what's wrong? And he goes, I want Naboth's vineyard. He won't sell it to me. Jezebel says this, you're the king. Just take it. But Ahab doesn't. So Jezebel takes matters into her own hands. She hires two scoundrels and says, go throw a party for Naboth. Invite him. And in the middle of the party, just stand up and say, Naboth, Naboth is a traitor. Naboth is evil. Naboth is just wrong. And say, let's all go kill Naboth. So that's what they do. They have this party. And in the middle of the party, these guys stand up. And next thing you know, Naboth is taken outside and stoned. And then Jezebel says, I got your vineyard for you. This is the gal she is. You really don't want to be secret Santa with Jezebel. I mean, it's really kind of what it comes down to. Second Kings 9, please. Let's tie this in now to what it's saying here about Jezebel. Remember what we said about this church. Look good on the outside. Inside was complete, utter evil. What's happening now in Second Kings chapter 9 is God raises up this guy by the name of Jehu to come into the nation of Israel, and it says, I need you to judge people. In fact, I'm going to have you kill every descendant of Ahab. Every descendant. So as he's doing this, he also is going to take out Jezebel. Now, it was prophesied years earlier that Jezebel was going to die a very tragic death. She was going to be eaten by dogs. That's what was prophesied about her. From a Jewish perspective, dogs were pretty dirty. So therefore, to be eaten by dogs, first off, you're being killed, and second off, it's by dogs. So what happens there is this. Jehu decides now it's time to come and take out Jezebel. This is God's command. So as he's coming now, he's taken out the descendants of Ahab. He's on this little hitless spree taking everybody out because the Lord says they need to be judged. He now comes to Jezebel, verse 30 of 2 Kings 9. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Now stop there for a little bit. We can study out the timeline. Jezebel's a grandma by this time. I'm not picking on you grandmas. She's an older woman. Jehu's coming to kill her. She knows what's happening. So the first thing she does is she puts on her makeup. Now, what was she going to do with that makeup on? I don't know. Was she going to try to seduce Jehu? 
we can kind of read through the lines here when we study out Jezebel's life. She obviously was an attractive woman. She used her looks many different ways, it seems to look like. She had this special marriage to Ahab, this political alliance. But what I want to do is I want to tie it back into what we just read there in Revelation chapter 2. You look good on the outside, and you're full of evil on the inside. This woman decides when her death is coming, I probably should get my makeup on first. And she looks real good. Verse 31, Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? If you don't know uh, Old Testament history real quick, Zimri was a guy that raised up and took out some kings years earlier. And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two of, or three eunuchs looked at him. Then he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank and said, Go now, see to this accursed woman, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and palms of her hands. You can see what happened there. Verse 36. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishabite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so they should not say, Here lies Jezebel. What's the tie-in? Christians, we spend so much time putting on makeup. We spend so much time making ourselves look pretty. Because we just want the world to like us and to think we're good and strong in the Lord. And the church at Thyatira, Jesus says, I can cut right through that junk. He goes, I have eyes of fire. I have feet like brass. I know your heart. I know your mind. I know your works. Yes, you look really, really good on the outside. But Jesus is saying, I want your heart. I want to be right with you and I want you to be right with me. And what I want to finish with is this. There is praise in this church, and I don't want to, obviously, uh, push over that. They had a lot of works, a lot of good things they were doing. And they were doing more good now than they were at the beginning. Amen. But he says, you've got this Jezebel thing going on inside of you. And that Jezebel thing is going to hurt you and destroy you. In fact, he calls it in verse 24, the depths of Satan. That's what happens when we just keep making sure the outside looks good. I'm just asking you to really check your heart and say, am I where I'm supposed to be spiritually? Because what I want is this, verse 25. I want to hold fast till Jesus comes. I want to overcome, which we've already talked about. And I want to do works until the end. I want to, verse 27, rule and reign with Jesus. Revelation chapter 20. We get to rule and reign with Christ during the millennial reign. That's what I want. I want, verse 28, the morning star, which is Jesus. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. That's what I want. But what we have to stop and say is, do I want to be a God-pleaser or a man-pleaser? Man-pleaser, I'm going to put my makeup on first before they come to kill me. At least I look good. God-pleaser, Lord, you know my heart. You know what's going on. I want to get right with you. What you see here at the church of Thyatira is you see an outside appearance that looks great, but the inside just full of immorality. And there was an awful period, an awful period of church history where the church looked really good on the outside, but inside was just full of immorality. And we're going to build on that next week when we get into the church at Sardis in chapter 3. But it's 8 o'clock here, so we need to finish up. Anybody have any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up here with prayer? All righty. Would you guys stand with me, please?
pray this into our lives. Lord, as we read these churches, we want to be a church that overcomes. We want to be individuals that overcome. And we want to have ears to hear what you're saying and not just talk about it, but truly go live it out. Lord, help us not to worry about the outside appearance of the makeup, but the heart. Lord, really, we want to give you that heart in all ways and all things. If there's someone here tonight that's struggling with any of these things we talk about, the idolatry, the greed, the sexual morality, Lord, just that fake falseness, I pray through your Holy Spirit you're convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, speaking truth to them. Lord, help us not just to talk about it, but to live it and all we do and say. And if there's someone here tonight that's living or working where the throne of Satan is, give them an encouragement and an uplifting to not deny your name and to hold fast. Thank you, Lord, for your love, grace, and mercy in your name. Amen. If you guys want, you can pack some boxes on the way out. Karen can direct you with that. You guys have a good week, and God bless.